on this week's Devils in the Details. We're deep into preseason. Some wins, some losses, some new faces and old. Today we'll discuss what went right and wrong against Arsenal and Real Madrid. Some new faces, Andre Onana, Mason Mount, and how good is Kabi Menu? Some tactical talk. What does it mean for sides to be possession-based versus transition-based? Does it mean anything at all? And some talk about United's overall transfer philosophy. What's good and what's less good when it comes to the Red Devils' window activity under Eric Ten Hag. Case. After all the special episodes with special guests the last few weeks, today we have a little bit of Devils in the Details heritage planned for our viewers. Ready to get back into it? Yes, sir. Let's do it. Awesome. We're going to get straight into it with some preseason talk. United played Real Madrid and Arsenal in the last week in the States. And I'd say for the most part, the two of us have just watched these matches together, or at least the first half of both matches where, where the first team was playing. And I think we both had relatively positive takeaways from these games. N- not not perfect, but I th- I think something to be be excited about at least. What do you think? Yeah, I think there's definitely a lot of reason to be positive. I mean, obviously United lost the match to Madrid, but I would say in general they played at about the same level they did against Arsenal. I, I really wouldn't say that there was a big, especially defensive change. Um, we're going to get into the details of that, but in, in general... The, I think positive performances. I think the biggest thing I'm worried about from preseason so far is fitness and injuries. We'll start with that Arsenal match. United obviously won that match in New York City. Um, and Bruno Fernandes and Jaden Sancho scoring the goals. Were there any big takeaways that you wanted to kind of get into with this? In terms of specifics, I don't know that I have a lot here. I thought we were able to have positive pressing phases against this Arsenal team. We were also able to play out of pressure a little bit better than was typical of our matches against Arsenal last season. I don't know what you want to chalk that up to. Um, I think a big part of it was Maynou. Yeah, well, what about you? What, what were your main takeaways? I happened to catch both halves of this match went originally, and then we, I rewatched with Aaron, just so everyone knows. Yeah, I only caught the first half, so the majority of what was played with the first team, and mostly just seeing the new players in the team and the impact they had. Like um, Mason Mount, I thought also was a positive presence in the side, both in and out of possession. Like he very clearly adds a lot to United's press. Um, it seems like United are going to be able to do a lot more in that department this season with someone like him in midfield instead of, um, instead of Erickson. But other than that, yeah, nothing, nothing too crazy from this Arsenal match. I, I did have one thing. We saw Jaden Sancho play center forward, obviously. Uh, I think we had a few questions asking whether or not we think that's a viable solution, something that we're going to yeah. see. Yeah, we can forward. do that now, actually. Um, so Xavier asks, do you think Sancho has a future at center forward? Based on what we've seen in preseason, it seems like Ten Hag is looking to use him similarly to how he played Tadic at times for Ajax. I think this could be the best way to make use of his qualities. Case, I'm not sure it's exactly the same as what Tadic was doing for Ajax, but that was something that Ten Hag did in the Champions League. Do you want to talk about that Um, and whether you think he might be looking to do the same thing with Sancho? Yeah, so I would open this topic by saying Sancho and Tadic are very, very different players. Um... Dusan Tadic has some of the best hold-up play of any player I have ever seen. Uh, and, and that was really key in their ability to use him at center forward. 
Um, and I think really the reason he was used at center forward, because in those end-to-end Champions League matches, having somebody who can make the ball stick in central areas allows you to play more vertically, be more of a threat on the counter. Uh, yeah, just generally is a huge plus. I don't know that... I, I, I'm quite confident that Sancho in his current form, and I don't, I don't, when I say form, I don't mean like, oh, he's in form or out of form. I mean in his current manifestation state. as a footballer, his state, yes, his cur- current state, uh, I don't think he's capable of that. And that is the key reason why Tadic played there. That said, Aaron and I did discuss while we were watching that this side presses way better with Sancho from the front than it does with Rashford from the front. Um, Sancho is, um, I would say, a higher work rate player out of possession um, and, and is a little bit more thoughtful about his marker and uh, certain triggers. That played a part in the positive perception, uh, especially during the first half uh, against Arsenal, of sort of this, this scheme. And then the other thing about Sancho is that he did genuinely look faster in this this one, th- these 45 minutes wh- wherein we saw him. Uh, and that, that was obviously underlined by his abil- ability to separate from Gabriel and, and finish on, on the counter, uh, which I think in previous seasons you would have seen him turn around and play the ball backwards. So that was good to see. Yeah, I'll be a little bit more specific about the problems I think this kind of creates with Sancho at center forward. Um, in particular, I think you're going to see a lot of in these two matches, it was evident the ball would be in the middle third. Um, and obviously more so in the Arsenal match because Sancho was up front. But in the Real Madrid match, Marcus Rashford was up front. And this also happened a couple times. The ball will be in the middle third of the pitch. United will have possession. It's relatively settled. Um, and the lack of centrality is going to really lead to a struggle to get the ball into the final third. So that's I think that's kind of what you're getting at with Tadic there, right? Which is like, A, the centrality gives you a sticking point to get the ball into and then have some level of confidence that they're going to be able to keep it in central areas. B, the centrality gives the defenders something to do, um, particularly the center backs, and they're going to have uh, they're going to have less ability to put pressure on whoever else might receive the ball because they have to pay attention to the center forward. Um, and that's something that was definitely missing as much as I think Sancho had bright moments in these matches. Um, the other thing is when you're in the creative areas, you're going to see a lot of really nice actions from United's now growing list of attacking midfielders who are really talented. Garnacho, Mount, Bruno, Sancho, Rashford, Anthony, I could go on. Um, And so often, they're just lacking someone in the middle who is going to get on chances in the box and take a shot. Um, A good example I'll give you is there's this play in the Arsenal match where Lissandro's at the half line he plays this beautiful ball over the top between the center backs. It's, it slices Arsenal's defense. And lo and behold, Wan-Bissaka arrives to try and finish this chance and get on the end of the chance. And like, it's a striker's run. Um, and Wan-Bissaka, A, isn't making the run. B, shouldn't be expected to make the run. There should be a striker there who's going to, who's going to be on that last line and sense those opportunities and make those runs. So... This might end up being a workaround if you don't have a center forward, but this doesn't solve the problems that that are driving the discussion that we've been having a lot and that has been had a lot about United lacking a center forward. Yeah, and to add on to that, I think if you want to go back to the Tadic comparison, another thing that Tadic often did was he would 
seek out contact back into a player, even deep in the opposition penalty area. Like he would back into a center back near, like almost near the six yard box and receive the ball to feet in that area. And then you'd have secondary runs sort of flood the box from there. Uh, and that was a, a way they penetrated the box and had central, you know, a focal point, which is what you're talking about. And I don't see that as something Sancho can do either. Um, and then beyond that, Tadic didn't even play center forward in league play overwhelmingly for exactly this reason. He didn't really offer the focal point that would allow for, you know, big chances to be created consistently between the width of the posts. Um, and that's why you saw players like Casper uh, Dolberg, uh, uh, Sebastian Haller, uh, and a variety of other big traditional center forwards playing uh, major minutes in the league. For them. Yeah, I think that's pretty much good. Um, and okay, we'll get on to Andre Onana in a minute, because I think obviously he made the team look very different. Were there any other big changes you saw in United's tactical approach in these two games compared to last season? Do you think they were pressing differently? Um, do you think that there were things that they did better in the Arsenal match than in the Real Madrid match that led to that big performance deficit? I think the biggest difference between the Arsenal match and the Real Madrid match, especially in the first halves of each game, uh, was the presence of Ericsson. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, I say that in a negative respect. I think Ericsson really crippled the press, uh, and he didn't look sharp with the ball either. I think the, the, the latter half of that statement is not likely to last. I, I still think you can trust Ericsson with the ball. Uh, and we saw a lot of rust from a lot of players in these matches. We saw Casemiro and Ericsson misplacing a lot of passes that I think historically you would expect them to have a higher success rate with. But that doesn't mean there's no signal here. And I think Ericsson has really, for almost six months now, looked very much behind the pace of a top-flight competitive match. And so United had, I counted, three or four uh, counter-pressing sequences that broke down because of Ericsson's inability to cover ground. That's in one half against Real Madrid. And that's yeah. in one half against Real Madrid, exactly. In the other match, where you saw Maynou and Mount in midfield, uh, it's up to you whether... I know Ericsson came on for Maynou, but I would actually argue that functionally, in the roles they were taking up, uh, it was more akin to what Mount was doing in the first match. Well, yeah, Maynou had switched roles, because he was pairing Casemiro at the start of the Real Madrid match. Yeah. To that effect, the trend, the difference between having someone athletic like Mount or Maynou in that advanced eight role, and Ericsson is really, really big. Uh, and I'm, I said this at the end of last season, that if Ericsson still looked like he had dead legs early on in the coming season, then I, would, I didn't anticipate him getting a lot of minutes. Uh, and it's beginning, we are starting to see a trend here, unfortunately. It's still early days. I don't want to take too much from 45 minutes of football. 90 minutes of football. He didn't look great in the second half against Arsenal either, but something to keep an eye on for sure. Yeah, I'll add one other takeaway. I agree with that one. Um, I personally felt that the absence of Anthony was really felt against Real Madrid. Um, I, I think a lot of people were talking about it out of possession in the press, and Bruno did make a few mistakes in the press from right wing, but I actually thought the bigger issue was in possession. In particular, there was like a black hole of like, Varane, Wambasaka, and Bruno, and so many times the ball got stuck in there. Um, you have Varane and Wambasaka really hesitant to play these progressive passes. 
Often when they do, I think the weighting is off a little bit. And then Bruno's often just a little bit... We've talked about this before. It's either the over-eagerness to kind of get it off in one touch or the fact that he doesn't actually believe he can shield the ball, so he has to take one touch. Either way, it's totally not the same thing as Anthony being able to receive in those imperfect situations and so often convert them into fouls or turn inside and get the ball going into in, in, out of build-up, basically. Um, and, and I thought that was a big issue at multiple points in that Real Madrid match. Um, whereas against Arsenal, even though I don't think Anthony had a great game, that was not a problem as much. There's one thing that I want to talk about about the, the Real Madrid match. We have talked many times on this podcast about how United press. And I don't want to rehash it too much, but I know we have some new listeners who maybe haven't heard us talk about this before. So... Uh, an aspect of how United press is when they're up against an opposing back four, the striker presses one of the opposing center backs. Uh, the near side winger presses his opposite fullback. And then the far sided winger, which is to say the winger who's furthest from the ball, uh, will sort of be in a quote unquote hybrid role, which is to say he will be responsible for marking both the far-sided fullback and the far-sided center back, depending on whether one or the other is a, is, a, is a passing option. I bring this up because this basically means that there's a weak, there's a built-in weakness in your press, which is somebody is always marking two players, which means you should be able to get one of those two players open at some point in a build-up sequence, and typically it's the fullback. The way you can deal with this, if you're united, is to quote-unquote, jump the fullback, which is to say your fullback on the far side comes up and marks the opposite fullback, which sort of alleviates the responsibility of the winger to mark two players. So now you have the winger and the striker straight up against the opposition's two center backs, one fullback against their their far-sided fullback, and your other winger against their near-sided fullback. Exactly. The reason you might not do this, and typically United haven't done this during the last year, or at all, this was not really something that was pertinent prior to last season, but the reason they they haven't done this is because when you jump your fullback, you inevitably have fewer numbers in, in the instance of a transition. And so really this is a conservative approach to pressing in some capacities, um, and it's something that Aaron and I have kept an eye on, I would say really for the last, what, nine months? Uh, maybe more than that, just to see at what point they, if and at what point they, they start jumping the fullback, because typically top sides jump the fullback. Um, I had some people ask me um, in this last Real Madrid match, they, they said, oh, it doesn't look like we're progressing in that way. It looks like we're still not jumping the fullback. That's the issue. That's why we played worse against Real Madrid. Uh, it's still so exploitable. That was, I would say that was not the key um, issue against Real Madrid. For what it's worth, Real Madrid, I would say they probably had, Aaron, correct me if I'm wrong here, something like 10 to 12 opportunities to play out from the back in this first half that we watched. Does that yeah, sound about right? So we, we watched it once together for player performance, and then we watched the whole thing back and kind of fast forward to see how many times Real Madrid tried to play out of their half and what happened whether they got through or not, and if they did get through, who was at fault. And pretty much only twice we found it was the fullbacks who did not jump onto Real Madrid's fullbacks. And as a result, 
Real Madrid were able to get extra time to play out. It was twice in 45 minutes. Yeah, so and one of the wasn't two, a big deal in this match. Yeah, not a big deal. One of the two times that it happened, um, you could make the argument that it was actually another player's mistake. And the other time that it happened, United were actually able to still get numbers back and prevent them from transitioning at pace. Um, so I would say not a key theme in this match. I wouldn't say that's been a, a, an important narrative in, in preseason so far. That's not to say that this won't be a thing going forward. We still got our eye on it. I don't think this is something we've got complete that's in our past. Um, yeah. But I wanted to address it. Yeah, and one more thing I will say is um, just because Real Madrid were not able to play out of the back in the absence of fullbacks in the press, it doesn't mean that there would be no benefits to fullbacks being in the press more often because there's the outcome where they struggle to play out of the back and then eventually hit it out of play. But a lot of teams will actually look to to increase the use of the fullbacks in the press or increase the aggressiveness of their press to force faster and more turnovers, right? So it, it still is just a risk-reward trade-off, but I think what we're getting at is that it wasn't the reason why Real were able to play through United in volume. Um, and and in general, I would say I don't think they were able to play through United in volume. Um, but when they did, it wasn't because the fullbacks weren't jumping in the press. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Again, I would go back to that point about Ericsson. Uh, in the instances where Madrid were able to play through United, which honestly I, I would argue was it was pretty infrequent, especially after the first... 15 yeah. minutes, United, for the most part, were able to monopolize control of the match. In the instances where Madrid did play out, it was overwhelmingly through midfield as a result of counter-pressing failures, the primary culprits being Rashford and Ericsson. Just food for thought, uh, something to keep an eye on going forward. Um, so in this half against Real Madrid, one more thing, or I mean, actually, no, we got two more things. In the first half against Real Madrid, we obviously saw the debut of new goalkeeper Andre Onana. How do you think this changed United's side? I I thought there were tons of changes. Like it, it felt like United center backs were able to be wider, farther from goal. It felt like they were able to look back. It felt like Onana was further up the pitch than any goalkeeper I've seen for United in ages. Um, I don't even know if we saw the best of him in this match. It was just a forty-five minute cameo in a preseason match. Yeah. So I. I... I'd open up this conversation by saying Real Madrid are definitely not the team to use as a litmus test for your ability to play out from the back, right? And I know you agree with that. Um, they just aren't that organized in terms of their their pressure high up the field. That's not me slandering anyone. I'm not, not saying Madrid aren't a good team. But when you want to see how you've moved forward in terms of building out of the back, this is not um, a side that I would use as a, as a, as a test. However... It's very obvious how much easier Onana makes it to build from the back. Um, A huge aspect of what I would say was a very, very long period of control of territory and possession towards the end of that first half against Madrid was the fact that uh, Madrid actually only had one high ball win that whole first half. It is clear how much of a difference it makes to have Onana available here he not only is he a really capable passer of the ball he makes himself available he's very comfortable under pressure and the reason that's such an immediate that's so immediately transformative is rather than going up against the opposition 10 against 10 you're going up against them 11 against 10 in 
early buildup phases. Uh, when he's a passing option, when he's outside of his box, you can you're always at a, at a numerical advantage, which is just going to make it very easy to exit your half. And so during that period, I would say 25 to 30 minute period at the end of the first half against Real Madrid, where United overwhelmingly had territorial dominance, that was a product of Real Madrid's inability to win the ball up high. Uh, United were very easily making it to the halfway line. Um, they only allowed one high ball win against Madrid in that whole half. And that high ball win came from a mistake from Wambasaka, which is something we can talk about a little bit later. Um, yeah, very, very, I, I really enjoyed watching him. Uh, I'm excited to see where we go from here. I'm excited for United to come up against a, a really high-end pressing side with him in goal, because that would be the real, uh, that, that'll be the moment of truth, right? Uh, but I, I think there's a lot of reasons to be positive about this. Uh, obviously, you can talk about the, the the first goal. You could argue he 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 rushed out a little bit too much. Um, this is something that De Gea was particularly good at, was long-range 1v1s. And the reason he was good at it is because he often waited. Um, you could say <laughs> Onana uh, rushes out here and that he doesn't, he, he should have been more patient. But I think the reality of it is A, Bellingham was offside. Uh, and B, the finish is incredible. So this isn't like a, this isn't the kind of mistake that is punished at a really high rate. Um, it's very, the finish is per, like, well, it's not punished perfect. at any rate at professional level because yeah, Bellingham was outside. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I want to talk about Kabi Menu. We've been talking about press resistance, ball carrying, having the right sense of timing in midfield, controlling the timing of matches. And lo and behold, this 2005-born academy graduate midfielder has come into the midfield and done these things at a higher level than I think we've seen in a pretty long time at United. Um, I know it's just preseason, but I'm pretty excited to see what he can do at senior level. Case, how good is he and what are his genuine chances of being involved this season? If you'd asked me this same question two weeks ago, I would have had a, a different answer. I would have said... You know, there's a, there's a chance he gets minutes, but he won't be relied upon. I was really impressed by the minutes we saw from him. They were limited. I don't want to make huge statements here, but press resistance is obvious. Uh, the technical consistency is obvious. He can physically keep up, I'm pretty confident, more so than somebody like Erickson, who we relied on last season. I'm very positive about this. I, I, I think we don't know the, the extent of his injury yet, and that will be obviously play a big part in this, but I think there's a really good chance you see a lot of main new minutes this season, which is exciting. I, I, it's very exciting. Even though he's only played like a couple of halves, uh, I also watched his half against Leeds and he was fantastic. Um, it, it really feels like he has such a wide array of strengths that people don't even know what United could fully do with him. Like it feels like he could be a Casemiro partner. It feels like he could be a Mason Mount partner and, and maybe replace Casemiro, but in a sort of different mold long term. And some people have even suggested that he could possibly play at right back. Um, in certain phases in possession, he's been dropping into that sort of right center back, right back area of the pitch. I think this is super evident against Arsenal. And then, yeah, he, he's able to drop into that zone and, and really assist with the ball progression. I mean, obviously United's other midfield options are still good, but I think we have some concerns about United's right-back options going into the season. Do you think right-back could be a way for him to get into the team? Do you think he's likely to play as Casemiro's partner? 
Or do you think he's likely to actually see a lot of minutes at the heart of midfield, um, taking Casemiro's spot when uh, when Casemiro is not available, or even when he is available? Yeah, I don't want to make huge. I don't want to make really big statements. Um, I'll, I'll make. Okay, you're right. I should make clear that my personal opinion is that you, we can still expect Casemiro, Mount, and Bruno Fernandez to be the starting midfield for most of this season, and probably I would say, I would, I would guess that that would be the midfield three at the start of next season. But I still think there's a chance that you go for a player who's a different mold and offers something different in certain matches. There are things that Mainu is clearly better at than Casemiro in that deepest midfield role. I'm not saying he's a better defensive midfielder. Casemiro's one of the best defensive midfielders in the world. But there are aspects that are key to the role that he is already better at. So that puts you in a space where there's an argument in a given match that he should be playing. Um, I don't expect him to play more minutes than Casemiro this season or anywhere near that. Uh, but I do think in general his he'll be playing most of his minutes in deeper midfield. Just because I think that's where you're getting the most value from him. Could you see him at right back? I think it's possible. But I think it's more likely that you just see him play in, mid, in midfield. And then in certain phases of build-up move into that right-back space. Uh, obviously, there's a bit of a hole at right-back, but I'm, I'm, I'm very doubtful that you're going to get more value from him. Like, the, the, the reason you would play him is because of his ability in central areas, his ability to turn on the ball, ride pressure, um, compete for the ball. I don't know why you... I think in general, you wouldn't put that at right-back. Uh... It doesn't make sense to me. I also want, I, I venture to guess that he would struggle positionally at right back. It's just a completely different position. Um, United have a, a pretty complicated, inter- I, I would say the, the current tactical system puts a lot of load on them in terms of their ability to interpret that role. Uh, yeah, so I'm not saying he won't get any right back minutes, but my guess is he plays most of his minutes as a six this season when he does play. Uh, and if not as a six, then as an eight. Yeah, I think these comparisons are kind of coming from Moises Caicedo, who I think it's worth noting is both defensively and athletically one of the most dominant players in the Premier League already. And I think that plays a big role in his ability to just translate between center midfield and right back. I think Maynou's game's a little bit different. He's he's really going to look to get a lot of touches on the ball and funnel passes forward in those tight spaces. Um, and I think that that plays better at midfield, even though it's harder for him to map out to the first team in a central midfield role than at right back. We have one more question here from Noah, who asked, what do you look for in preseason to judge a young player? Um, why does someone like Iqbal, for example, look so good to my eyes in preseason last year and then get no minutes in the season and then get sold? Yeah, so I like this this question for a lot of reasons. The, the main reason I like it is because it lets me talk about something that I've been meaning to talk about on this podcast for a little while. And that is, I think at a fundamental level, uh, when you, especially in preseason, like the, the, there's a lot of noise and, and a lot of differences from, you know, your typical matches. The difference between what you're seeing and what the coaches are generally evaluating players on, I would say predominantly comes down to intensity and physicality. It's pretty easy to perceive a player's ability, a player's technical ability. You can tell when a player is capable of executing passes, uh, when their touch is nice. Like these are things that I think casual 
football watchers can see very easily. I think what is harder to perceive, and this isn't me placing fault on anyone or, or you, Noah. I don't want you to take this the wrong way. What is harder to perceive for anyone is whether a player is physically at the level for a given level of competition. And I think in preseason where the intensity is much more variable, a lot of these players aren't fit. A lot of the tactical systems aren't so drilled. Um, the intensity is generally lower. Some of these guys just got back from three weeks in Brazil on the beach. You're just going to, it's an environment where players of a high technical level, but a lower physical level can show off ability that they might not otherwise be able to leverage in a high intensity Premier League season. So I think that is the big thing with Iqbal. Like, I think there are real questions about his, his physical capacity to play this level. In the past, I would have said that it it's not as big of a deal as some managers make it out to be. I think I've personally, this has been an evolution of mine. I've come around and, and I feel that that's not so true. Um, I think when you look at switching a player like Mount for Ericsson, uh, that is fundamentally down to physical ability more than anything else. Uh, and that's not to say that Mount is not a great technician and an intelligent footballer, but the key difference, the reason you would spend money to make that upgrade is down to physicality. And at, at a fundamental level, these top sides are so, so physical that you could be technically good enough to play in the side, but if you can't run for 90 minutes twice a week, it's not going to matter. Um, and so that's you what need I, both. you need both, you need both. And I think this is a funny, uh, a funny, uh, observation in the context of data analysis in football, in terms of, you know, tactical analysis in football. I think we're constantly looking for market inefficiencies, right? Instances where the, the conventional wisdom is wrong and you can gain a t an advantage by exploiting that. Um, and I think the, intu the intuitively, you would think that either technical ability or physical ability uh, has greater value and you can compromise on one or the other if you want to be an elite side. Um, and and still and through through that insight, be more efficient in your recruitment. But I think the reality is, you look at a side like City, they're incredibly physical and incredibly technical. There, there really aren't players who are one or the other in that side. And I think if you look at a side like Arsenal, I think you see, you can see that this season they spent lots of money this in this summer transfer window. They spent lots of money on upgrading their physicality first and foremost. Yeah, I'll have one more thing, which is that I think in the context of being you know a data analysis, we're we're both data guys. the The podcast talks a lot about data, and we talk a lot about technical ability in footballers. Um, I think you were talking about how, you know, the market inefficiencies and identifying them um, are key to being able to get your team to play above their financial level. Yep. Um, but I think it's important to remember that every team has different financial considerations that inform the market inefficiencies that they have to try to exploit. Yes. So a team like Brighton and Brentford... They're mid-table Premier League teams. They're playing at a level where there are dozens of players in any given position in world football who can come into Brighton and Brentford and, add value. and make an impact. And Brighton and Brentford's job is to identify those players. When you're Manchester United, 
you need to be accessing the pool of talent that is among the world's absolute best. And that means you need players who are technically proficient, you need players who are physically proficient, not only at a Premier League level, but at a Champions League level. And in order to do that, the market inefficiency you're trying to exploit is less so the uh, ability to acquire those players at a reasonable price. That's still a factor, but I think the bigger factor is the ability to identify which players will be able to do that that aren't already doing it. Yeah, and, and to add on to that, to continue that line of thinking, really, another example of this phenomenon is we want to talk about expected goals. One of the first insights that data analysis and statistics made into football was that great goal scorers aren't necessarily the best finishers in the sport. What they are invariably are the greatest chance getters in the sport. The players who can get on the end of high quality chances, manufacture high quality shots, not necessarily convert those shots at a high level. Um, And this was a huge insight a decade ago. um, And it informed a lot of early uh, data-driven analysis of the sport. And it's still a valuable insight. But I think overwhelmingly when you start analyzing these top teams, these sides that have almost, these sides that are spending hundreds of millions of pounds every summer to try to keep up, you wind up realizing that one or the other simply isn't enough. Um, It's never true that a side just needs a, a great finisher and that's the only finishing touch they need. And it's also not really true that a side just needs a a chance manufacturer, a player who can get on the ends of goals. You look at Erling Holland, you look at Harry Kane. These are really arguably the only two players left in top flight European football who both A, get get on the end of tons of high quality chances and B, consistently overperform their expected goals year after year by a wide margin. And those are two of the only elite strikers in Europe. And it's because they do both. And if you want to compete with City, who now have one of those players, you got to have one of them on your own. Um, And that's not to say that, this is not me saying you got to have Kane, but you can't just be looking for a guy who manufactures chances and misses tons of them. You can't have somebody like Edin Dzeko, for example, who I think is very good and consistently throughout his career has gotten on the end of chances, but has also consistently converted them at a really low rate. Um, you got, you have to have both, maybe not at the level that Holland or Kane are at, but you need a player who can get on the end of lots of chances and convert them. Um, and that's, that's only true when you're existing at the top end of the market. It's great that it comes up because I think this is something that informs a lot of what we talk about, even though we've never explicitly talked about this on the podcast. Um, when we look at things like United signing Hoyland, so going back to the market inefficiency, inefficiencies discussion. The, the the job here that United have to do is they have to try and figure out how they can get the closest thing they can get to Erling Haaland when it's not available directly. Um, they have to look at the world, look at the market, and figure out who they can buy, who's going to get them to the closest level that Holland can get them. Um, and that is a very different problem to what we see at other teams. So I, I would say that you know the price went too high eventually. But I think we would both be more sympathetic than many to the view that United should have spent an absolute ton of money on someone like Victor Osimhen because he becomes a market inefficiency in that he gives you an outsized 
level of impact compared to any other striker that could come in for United this summer, um, while also not mortgaging your 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 financial allocation on the short term. Um, and, and that really is the top and bottom of it. I've said this before on this podcast many times, but we often have two conversations, right? We have the role conversation. Does this player fit into the role you're, you, you need? Um, take Anthony, for example. He's a great example of a player who does this. He is a right winger. He is capable of making the ball stick on the right side. Uh, he's very capable out of possession. He's very much a role fit. You've got player type A, right? Role fit. Then you've got player type B. Player type B is elite. Uh, player type B is extremely high impact. The, their raw quality is extremely high. Um, they don't necessarily fit into the role you need them to. Um, but they are one of the best players in the world. A good example of this for United is maybe, I don't know, Aaron, who, who comes to your mind in this instance? Bruno. Bruno is a great example. Bruno is a great example. Bruno, in a lot of ways, is an inconvenience for a side that wants to play top flight possession-based football. He is too trigger happy with the ball. He is wasteful. Um, He isn't really inclined to the kind of patience that I think typically you'd see in an elite attacking midfielder. That said, from a raw quality perspective, is, is Bruno Fernandes better than Anthony? Absolutely. It's not even close. He has much, much, much bigger impact on United's ability to win games over the course of 38 matches. So you've got player A, you've got player, of, you've got player type A and player type B. Then you have the pinnacle, the thing you're always looking for, which is player type C, right? Player type C is both of those things. Uh, he both fits into the role that you need and is good enough to play for your side. Um, and I think when s- teams that aren't trying to win Premier League titles and Champions League titles are trying to build sides, they get to pick. They get to say, we can only have A's, uh, or we only need A's, or we only need B's, or a combination of the two. The reality is, City have a bunch of C's. Uh, which it's kind of odd that I'm using C as a positive thing, but if you've been following, hopefully you understand what I'm saying. They've got a lot of players <laughs> who are both good enough and fit the role. Erling Holland is somebody like that. Um, oh my goodness. John Stones is somebody like that. Uh, Rodri is somebody like that. This started with Zidane Iqbal. This started with Zidane Iqbal, exactly. Um, and that's... I bring this up, and we, we defend Anthony a lot on this podcast, but I think this is probably the most damning thing when it comes to Anthony, is that you spent a lot of money on a player who it's very, very unlikely that they're ever going to be a C, um, a, a player of type C. Um, and I think, yeah, that that is the real sin there. It's not that it was a, a role misfit, which I think you could argue is is actually a lot worse than a quality misfit, um, depending on how big the difference in quality is. Um, 
but a mistake nonetheless. And United need to be almost perfect if they're going to be better than City. And it was certainly not a perfect move. Um, yeah. And you can really categorize every player at United into A, B, or C. And then I guess there's also a D, which is neither a role fit or good enough. <laughs> um, there are a few. Yeah. Um, We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Devils in the Details, everyone. We're going to talk a little bit more about some macro trends in the sport and in United's trajectory in the second half here. Um, And in particular, I think there have been ongoing debates in the football analytics space on football Twitter, or if you will, football X, um, about whether (laughs) United are more... (laughs) Don't know. We're not calling it X. We're calling it Twitter. It's Twitter. It's Twitter. Please, stop this. This is... You're enjoying this, but I'm not. I'm not enjoying this. For those of you who don't know, Aaron, Aaron's been doing this to me all day. We've been on the phone for like, we've been on Zoom for like four hours, and he's been calling Twitter X every time it comes up. Okay. There's been a lot of discussion on football Twitter about whether sides are possession or transition based, and particularly with the context of Ten Hogs United, he's kind of like a former Ajax coach who comes from a, you know, long list of Ajax coach graduates who are possession heavy coaches with possession-heavy styles focused on building out of the back. Um, but at United, what we've seen is a lot of a, a game focused on a lot of high regains, um, transition-based football, lots of strong counter-attacking ability. And I think we wanted to talk about this because it seems like people sometimes have this misconception that these ideas are mutually exclusive, when in reality, I feel like the best possession teams are elite at converting in transition situations and the best transition teams have very very clear plans of what they do in possession even if it's not a possession-based approach yep i totally agree i I think i would say right now united are a possession-based side uh and i actually put a poll on my on my twitter like a couple weeks ago where i was like where i asked do you think united are a possession-based side if you're a united fan and 70 percent of people said no I think that is clearly untrue. Um, United overwhelmingly dominate the ball uh, in their matches. Uh, They have a clear approach in possession. Uh, They generate chances from settled possession in the opposition half, far more than they do from transitional moments generated through possession, which I would argue is what I think people perceive them to be, which it isn't. Um... Do United get a plurality of their let me say that again. Do United get a plurality of their chances from counterattacking moments? I would say so. Their big chances often come from counterattacks. Um, that does not make them not a possession-based side. However, to go back to your initial point, these words are meaningless. Ultimately, the goal, the end goal for your game model to be a top side is to be elite in transition and elite in possession. And for it to not really matter how a side tries to, tries to defend against you because you can deal with it either way. And that's where city are at. Um, And I would say Arsenal are pursuing that. Uh, And Liverpool had that 
uh, and maybe we'll have that again. Um, yeah, so like you can talk about like, oh, he has a transitional approach. What are the limitations of the transitional approach? I think that's untrue. Um, and then you can also, the other, other side of the coin, which is, oh, it's a possession. Uh, he, he wants to get to a possession-based approach, doesn't he? Isn't it weird that he can't get to a possession-based approach? And I would say we're already at a possession-based approach. Um, and that will only be more true with Onana, but I think it was already true. Yeah, I think people are kind of confusing what teams do most often with what teams set out to do. Um, and what they should set out to do is have a plan in every phase. And I'm going to posit that in every single Premier League match next season, both teams are going to have at least one spell of possession. Both teams are going to have at least one attacking transition and one defensive transition. And both teams are going to have at least one set piece. There might be one or two exceptions in the 380 matches next season. But what I'd that means... if there was. Yeah, I mean... Uh, and... What that means is that you're going to have to have a plan for each of those different phases, regardless of which one you're going to operate in most. So if City are going to have 65% possession, they're going to have an outsized amount of settled possession compared to teams in the middle of the Premier League table. If United are going to be the highest pressing team in the Premier League, that means they're going to spend a lot of time in transition phases. It doesn't mean that they don't have a plan in possession. And it doesn't mean they don't want to possess the ball. Yes. So I would argue that when when we say a possession-based side, what we mean is a side that looks primarily to adopt possession and transition-based approaches that leads to having more of the ball in the opposition half. And what that means is they're likely to press, they're likely to play out of the back. Yeah, I yeah, I I can agree with that definition. I would I would take it a step further. I would say you can be possession based and extremely vertical, um, and not even have particularly high possession numbers. You can you can average like fifty two percent possession and still be possession based. Very vertical passes, play the ball over the top, um, and still be possession based because possession based. Really, at least how we use it, and really what I think it means, not to monopolize the word, but is that you have a coherent approach to how you are going to play in possession, uh, and that there Maybe. Will be patterns and orientation. Yeah, uh, and, I mean, and, I think there are some other approaches that I wouldn't consider possession football, but are a clear plan in possession. I think, yeah, I mean, yes, if you're just going to bomb the ball down the pitch, that's not a possession-based approach, because you're not trying to maintain possession, but... You can be extremely vertical and you can deliberately play over the top, um, try to stretch teams, play fast, and still be playing possession football. I think that's good. I think essentially the point here is that these terms are not mutually exclusive and you're not going to see United change from one to the other. The things they were good at last season, ideally, they're still going to be good at this season. And the things that they weren't as good at last season, ideally, they're going to get better at this season. Um, and I'm pretty sure Ten Hag has an idea of what he wants United to do in all five of these phases. In possession, out of possession, both sides of transitions, and set pieces. And well, set the pieces is the, bigger, is the biggest question mark, I would say, actually. but Yeah, um, with that... United were very bad from set pieces last season. That, that'll be a, an underrated narrative this coming season. 
No, that's okay. Um, let's talk about tactic. Uh, sorry, we talked about some tactical stuff. Let's talk about general recruitment approach. Um, we've gotten a lot of questions about whether it's a problem that United are buying so many of Ten Hag's past players. Um, I think essentially what this idea comes from is uh, that there might be a link between who United purchase and who the manager is directly recommending or who he's directly in touch with. And that is, going back to the market inefficiencies discussion, a suboptimal way to identify market inefficiencies because you're missing out on players that the manager, whose main job is managing and coaching the team, would not be aware of. Um, And so you're seeing links to players like Mason Mount, who played in the Eredivisie years ago, Andre Onana, who played for Ten Hag's Ajax, Sofian Amrabat, who played for Ten Hag's Utrecht. Uh, last year, United signed Eriksen, who's a former Ajax player. Malasia, who was from the Eredivisie. Lissandra Martinez, from Ajax, under Eric Ten Hag. Anthony, from Ajax, under Eric Ten Hag. And Casemiro, who's one of the most established players in football. Yeah, do you think that this is a big problem? And where and when does it hold United back? Or where and when does it help United out? Why don't you take this question first? Sure. Firstly, before I go into all the negatives, I will say that I think it does help United out in that I I think it has led to United being able to get certain players who are very, very good that otherwise they might not have had as clear a path to get. And the clear examples of this are Lissandra Martinez and Andre Onana. I think these are two players who are among the best in the world in their position who, if they didn't already want to play for United, I think having Eric Ten Hag at the club is a big factor in getting them here. And I think that that presents you an advantage. Your manager is well-connected in the industry. He's well-connected with top talent. I think the disadvantage is you end up recruiting players, um, A, based on the manager's discretion, which, as we say, it's not his primary job to be watching all these other teams, so it might not actually be as informed as people like you know, club analysts who sit and watch thousands and thousands and thousands of minutes of every single player that they're like, that's their job. Um, And the other thing is you're overpaying because looking to buy specific players increases the negotiating power of the teams you're negotiating with. Um, So the great example of that is Anthony, right? You end up paying a lot more because Ajax knows that you want the Ajax guy that Ten Hag knew that offers a specific profile that you feel you need in your team. Yeah, I agree with the broad strokes there. I I would add on the other issue with the Anthony deal, and you sort of touched on this, is the fixation. Because, you know, if your manager knows that a certain player can fulfill a role, but you don't have the scouting infrastructure to find other players that fill that role, you lend aside, you become fixated on that target, and then you lend aside bargaining power, but also... You might be missing out on another player who can do all the things that said player can do that the manager has experience with, but also is generally better and can raise your ceiling higher and can hit a higher level. And I think Anthony is a great example. To, to, to play off a couple other things you said, in general, I don't think this is a, a problem in principle. Uh, and so far, I would say it hasn't been a problem with the exception being Anthony. I think the, the players United have gotten have clearly been significant improvements on the players that United otherwise had and have either been Premier League title level players or had the potential to reach that, which are 
really the two kinds of players you should be buying. Um, would it be limiting if you if United bought all of the Ajax players that if if United bought their entire squad from 2018 or um, from 2020 2021? Yes, obviously. But I also think those sides were so successful partially because they had players who are good enough to play at this level for United. And I think overwhelmingly United have picked the ones that were at that level. Um, Lisandro Martinez is one of the best center backs in world football. That was true before he was at United. I would have been happy with him as a target, even if Mauricio Pochettino or somebody else was coaching United. That's true to a lesser extent with Anthony. Um, but I think... I don't think it's a problem to be targeting Frankie Dion, for example. <laughs> I don't think that's a problem. I think he's arguably the best player in the world at his position. So I don't think, like, th- those, on the one hand, yes, United needs to be better than that side was. But on the other hand, that's because that side had weaknesses. United don't need to buy those weaknesses. They can otherwise supplement those areas differently. Um, with, for example, Sofian Amrabat or Casemiro or Rasmus Hoyland, who has, as, as far as I'm as far as I'm aware, no connection. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't think it's really an issue. Uh, it, it would be an issue if you started seeing links to like, I don't know, who's, who's an example of somebody who I wouldn't want. Uh, Edson Alvarez. Edson Alvarez. Yeah, uh, that's that's a good example. That would just show, that would show a lack of imagination and a misidentification of talent, which would be problematic. Yeah, again, I, I, I'm glad we had that market inefficiencies discussion now, which wasn't planned because I think that that's a good way of framing this, right? I think the clubs that win the most in the transfer window, the Brightons, the Brentfords. By the way, let me just great article about Brighton's transfer uh, window approach and their approach to player development by Billy Carpenter uh, in scouted football on their website this past week. Oh, it was fantastic. Wow. Go ahead, Aaron. Um, Yeah. So Brighton and Brentford, the reason why these teams win in the transfer window is because they have worldwide scouting networks, data-driven models that are, that are clearly highly accurate. um, And they're using those to identify players that they think are undervalued. And Brighton and Brentford's remit for a successful team is turning profits um, on players who are good enough to play for them and better that have not yet been discovered to be good enough to play for them and better. United's market inefficiency is finding the best talent in the world that's at a reasonable age and available to join. And so Ten Hag having connections to many players who are in that pool of the best talent in the world, the Mason Mounts, the Lissandra Martinez's, the Andre Onana's, and having the resources to get them is never going to be a problem. That's just, that's just, that's just good recruitment. Where it becomes a problem is where the talent you're getting is no longer elite. So if you brought in, you know, a manager from the championship and they were coaching a championship team that did not have any elite talent and you you're turning to them and going okay who are we bringing in and they're no longer bringing in this elite talent then it becomes more of a problem because then the players you're getting 
from this talent pool are not that good if it is a manager-based recruitment approach. But as long as the players that are coming in are good, um, and by good I mean very, very, very good, and for the most part I think they have been, um, I don't think this is an issue that we need to be worrying about too much. Yeah, I think the real talking point here is perhaps opportunity cost. Like, it's great that he's connected to these very talented footballers. I think it's less great that there are perhaps even more talented footballers that you're missing out on as a result. Um, Yeah. For example, I think I would have much rather spent those 90 million last summer that were spent on Anthony on Victor Osman or Rafael Leao, who I think are players he wasn't connected to. Not that I think Anthony is a bad footballer, but players he wasn't connected to who I think are more talented. Um, and really would have elevated this United side as opposed to uh, filling a role. Um, And I think if all goes well this season and all the tactical developments that need to, you'll see two big, the the, the new roadblock for United will be the absence of top-end elite attacking talent. And there are a couple players out there and we aren't really linked to them. And that, That is what worries me, Case. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, Identifying the market inefficiency of elite talent is not a problem when your approach identifies the talent, and it is a problem when your approach misses the talent. Basically what it is. Hope you guys enjoyed this week's episode. We'll be back next week, hopefully with some transfer news, but if not, we never run out of things to talk about here at Devils in the Details, and the Premier League season is coming up soon, so in a couple weeks, we'll be back into the thick of things. Thanks for listening, everyone. Hope you enjoyed this week's Devils in the Details. You can follow us at DevilsITDPod on Twitter or on a variety of streaming platforms. Our awesome theme music was made by Jacob Connor. You can find at Jacob J. Connor on Twitter. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time.